Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Two Brits, One Orange Ball, joined by a very emotional and bold Mark Littlewood. What is up, Jeffrey? Bring the team back. Bring them back now. <laughs> get Reinsdorf on the phone. Get Rodman out of North Korea or wherever the fuck he is. Pipping's been doing some Pilates and yoga and hot stones. He can come back. MJ's not 60 yet, Jay. I believe. I believe in the balls. Bring them back. Get that seventh ring. That's what I'm saying. What's, what's horrendous is they probably make a better run out than the current team, but let's not talk about that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's go, let's dive straight into, you know, obviously we've, we've now finished the last dance as a, as a series. We're a bit disappointed in some ways, but also I think those last eight minutes of that episode 10 were just you know, what you said earlier in terms of absolute basketball nirvana, just an absolute magical moment. Can't, can't really put it into words. It's made me just want to get a basketball, go to the nearest park, obviously social distancing when we can and just start shooting again. And that's the beauty and magic of it. And the mystique of those 90s balls, I think, was really encapsulated in those final eight minutes, as you say. What a beautiful ending. It was poetic. It was absolutely poetic. And in some ways, as much as we'd love to have seen if they could carry on and see that seventh championship run, I think the fact that it ended so abruptly, but yet so beautifully, I think that just added to the essence and mystique of those 90s balls. It was a beautiful thing to see, Jay. It's beautiful. The whole thing. Absolute magic. It's taken me over 10 years of our friendship. I'm going to get you on my local league team if it kills me. You can be the point guard because you're like 5'7", but I'll just move to shooting guard. It's fine. I've put on some size since my playing days. Jay and not always in a good way so um, I think I'll have to improve the flexibility a little bit get the stretch in make sure that I'm nice and limber but yeah we'll see how you, it goes we'll see how it goes can you touch your shoulder yet is that is that changed because when, when I oh, first met you at no. university struggled trying to touch your arms you actually couldn't touch your shoulder I was like yeah, that might be a problem mate <laughs> yeah I'm not sure your jump shot's gonna have a particularly good art right there my wife is a great crossfitter and she does all sorts of crazy shit she's like doing jumping handstands up walls and stuff I can't even touch my toes Jay there's serious problems I, I do need to limber I'm gonna be putting a hamstring at pace if, uh, if we go back to our playing days <laughs> I'll, I'll ask I'll ask just to sort you out, get you on the stretcher, and I don't think I've seen you stretch it ever in the <laughs> 10 years <laughs> and we've gone to the gym quite a bit as well. Moving, moving back to that episode, yeah, I mean, the beginning of that eight-minute stretch starts with Scotty Pippen talking about how Jerry Krause deserves the credit as greatest GM in the game. As we've talked about in previous episodes, that's a massive, massive thing for him to say. After everything that he's gone through with him, the money side of it, all of it, it just it just shows what winning can do, I suppose, and the magic of sports for, for many people. What were your thoughts on that, man? I thought it showed an area of humility for Scotty, which was a really nice thing. And I think, obviously, in the previous episode that was documenting the worst time, really, as a ball for him in that he didn't actually go in following that time out against the Knicks in the 94 playoff run. I thought that was a nice thing, and it documented another side of Scotty's character that I think it warranted and deserved like you say just rounded off the series nicely and in all fairness it showed an area that Jerry Krause was well deserving of in that he was ultimately a key component to bringing those players and that team together obviously through tremendous talent and a sheer will to win in Michael Jordan and Scotty Pippen as that facilitator I think all these key variables aided by Phil Jackson also and in those later years Dennis Rodman it was just a beautiful magical thing that culminated to 
all those winning runs, those years of longevity that we haven't really seen since to that level or spectacle. Conversely to that, obviously we jump from that really nice magical moment with Scotty to Mr. Jerry Reinsdorf, uh, <laughs> who obviously <laughs> talks about how he potentially tried to get Phil Jackson back in that 99 season. Now, I know you were close to this at the time, but obviously there was the lockout at the end of that year. And I believe you think that has quite a lot of groundings as to why that potentially wasn't possible in terms of bringing back that core of Jordan, Pitt, Rodman, Harper, Kerr, all of all of whom he felt almost suicidal to bring them all back because they would have such a high market value. They weren't necessarily worth it which sounds incredible when you've just won six championships. Jordan went on to say, look, if, if you'd have got those, those guys together in a room and said, look, we'll give this one more year, let's all sign one-year contracts, he has no doubt in his mind that they would have done that. And it was interesting that Jordan still to this day had not had any dialogue with Reinsdorf about that decision um, and how that all happened. But again, to, to kind of round off the point, it was all mostly because of Phil Jackson not wanting to come back because Krauss wanted to rebuild. He felt that that was the year they should do it. I think that Phil Jackson, when he was being interviewed, I thought it was a really interesting insight. There was almost a an air or an acceptance that the run was over and that it was a beautiful time for him to step away and to go and do other things. Um, and I think that was encapsulated in the interview quite well. Whereas in the comparison to MJ, that competitive fire was still burning obviously and obviously that was culminated by his return for the Wizards later on I think he still had that desire and that will to play and because he was such a winner and such a force I don't think you can ever really kill that as we've discussed in previous podcasts but again I think that just added to the mystique and the aura that they went out on top and no matter how many times down the years teams and great players try to win and beat them, they would always, always win. But I think that they're certainly at 98 season, I think there was an air of a fragility with the balls that we hadn't necessarily seen in recent times. And they barely reached that summit. And obviously the Pacers uh, Eastern Conference final series prior to that 98 finals, I think again, captures that really well. Taking them to a game seven for only the second time in their championship run, barely being able to win and ultimately going to that finals and just being able to come out on top again. There were signs that it was perhaps coming to an end. And again, to make it even more beautiful, the fact that they, they were able to win and they didn't get knocked off. And I think that Reinsdorf perhaps saw that as well. Whether or not they would have got back together and gone for another run if the lockout hadn't shortened that season in the 98-99 year, we'll never know. I think that it certainly didn't help the situation because it created more distance between them winning the championship and that next season. And I think there are a lot of variables there that were quite sort of time important. And I think that, as I say, that may have led to Gossi being traded, Rodman being released and Jordan retiring. Stern and, and others go on to talk about how, you know, once Michael jumped down out of the league, who would be that person to, to pick up the mantle? We're, we're kind of experiencing a little bit today in, in 2020 when LeBron eventually gets to the stage where he's going to retire. But just to, to go back in terms of Michael's impact on the league and obviously the lockout and the, the change in salaries being a big part of that, his legacy, I think, is something that was polished essentially in, in this documentary. And I think it confirmed to, to many, many people that he's the greatest of all time. And for me, the reason for that is not necessarily just because of obviously his feats on the basketball court, but it's how many people 
he brought into the game of basketball. Now, I thought this, the David Stern quote about how in 92, the NBA was seen and available in about 80 countries. And now it's 215. This documentary might even bring about a second wave of that enthusiasm to the sport that we love. As, as you rightly said, I think the immediate thought after, after watching this documentary is you just want to go out and play, play the game you love. It's, it kind of cemented to me that, you know, basketball is, if not the, you know, one of the greatest sports in the world because of how it, how it brings people together and how you can see feats like this where human beings are pushing themselves to the ultimate and essentially it's inspiring for many, many people. I second that totally, Jay. It's a great thing especially in you know these trial and uncertain times to have a little bit of joy and nostalgia for many people like I've like we've sort of said many times for me it was taking me back to my childhood and watching those games with my dad all over again which I think was one of the reasons why there was so much emotion attached to it my dad bless him with the lockdown he's he's growing this crazy beard and he's got this big afro and he's he's awesome just to just to have that and those memories going back to watch those games, it's kind of like you're in the moment again. And like I say, I think all this adrenaline and emotion that's attached to it, it just makes you push on and kind of think, oh, I'd love to be able to go and pick up a ball and go and shoot a hoop again. And that's in essence what Michael Jordan was able to do. But also in more recent years, let's not in any way tarnish LeBron James's excellence and feats within the game in terms of the current generation. LeBron James has been that alongside Kobe Bryant, as we kind of touched on in the previous pod with Josh Bett. I think that that is something that has to be mentioned for LeBron James, his level of excellence and greatness for such a sustained long period of time going on the best part of two decades now. No one in any way is taking anything away from LeBron James. Absolutely. I think LeBron's impact is still tremendous. We're not, we're not taking anything away from him at all and obviously what he's been able to do with things like the I Promise School, the amount of people that he's obviously inspired and how he's been the ultimate role model really in his entire career. He's never been in trouble, never never been in negative light particularly apart from maybe his decision to join Miami which is particularly silly really when you think about it in, in slightly wider considerations. So I think in terms of the people that Jordan has helped attract to the game, I don't think anyone will ever touch that and that's part of the reason why for me he, he's the greatest. Now it's quite interesting because there's been a few things coming about talking about Space Jam as well in terms of how that had an impact is is quite interesting that that was such a big part of our childhood and people in the 90s and did the job from a marketing perspective of encapsulating this youth that maybe we all heard of Michael Jordan we all knew about basketball but that potentially is the spark that many people had as a young person to pot potentially pick up a basketball it might be something that LeBron has in his mind about Space Jam 2 and doing again like a second round of that and I'm hoping that for this documentary, it will be a second spark for just Jordan's whole legacy. But it'd be interesting to see if there's a, a second chapter from you know, an influx of people into the sport from, from Space Jam 2 as well, specifically, obviously, looking at the younger age group. Because, again, when we're talking about trying to promote the game, not only in the UK, but globally, we are almost fighting other sports to get the best athletes, the best, the best kids to pick up a basketball rather than potentially a football or rugby ball or, or an American football. So to move back to, to episode nine, we'll, we'll go through everything in a bit more detail now and what, what I just wanted to ask you before we do that was obviously this has been a, a crazy experience and I've loved every minute of it and it's been amazing to do it with you mate and have the time to do this for, for most of the episodes if you could have this sort of experience this sort of 10-part documentary for another NBA player who would you choose wow that's putting me on the spot difficult because in today's era you have so much more exposure to players and you kind of feel like you know them so much more 
MJ and players in those 90s, there was a little bit more mystery and mystique around them because you didn't have much, as much exposure and as much knowledge um, that you do today. The sort of common answer would be LeBron James because he is the biggest player in today's game. But because he's so active... We've got more than a game, I suppose, as well, which is like his early year. But if we were to potentially, as you say, maybe extend that out and take it not only from his high school days, which that focuses on, but maybe later on into his career. So those early, those early losses, those early matchups match with people like the Magic and, that, and teams of that ilk. Um, yeah, I'm, you know what? Yeah, I am going to say LeBron James. I'm going to say LeBron James, not only because he is the biggest player of our generation coinciding along Kobe Bryant and obviously Michael Jordan. But I think that, yes, to see the maturation of the man and deal with so much so young, coming out straight out of high school when he was 18 years old, dealing with the trials and tribulations of becoming an NBA superstar. Like you say, dealing with those early losses, coming back from it and ultimately winning that elusive championship with the Miami Heat. Yeah, I think that that would be a fantastic story. And also to see how he's come full circle. He's now what you would call a veteran of the game. He's kind of on the tail end of his career, but he's still being able to contribute significantly to his team at a competitive and great level at his age. And I think that the passion and commitment to his craft that he's shown, not only to his teammates, to his family, to his body, and ultimately the game, that speaks volumes about LeBron James. And I think that that should be a massive benefit and an appreciation for him and, and for the game because he's helped fill that void left by those past greats such as Michael Jordan, those early 2000 Kobe Bryant and Shaquille O'Neal teams. And LeBron James has just picked up that mantle as an 18-year-old kid since 2003 and ran with it. He's an advocate for speaking out on social issues also. He's more than just a basketball player and it's, it's not only the game to him. So, uh, yeah, I would go LeBron James, Jay. I would go LeBron James. What about yourself? Uh, again, a really good question. I think for me, probably the top three, if you could tell the stories in full of anyone from our generation. Derek Rose. just had... Mate, good, good, but no. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd want one eventually, don't get me wrong, but it wouldn't be my first choice. Um, <laughs> so top, top three would be, obviously, we just had MJ. That's the, that's the number one. Two, as you rightly mentioned, I think would probably be LeBron. And again, this is for our, our era. And three, I think, especially with what, is, what has happened recently, I, I think it has to be Kobe Bryant. Obviously, there's, there's a lot that goes into his legacy and his upbringing, obviously, growing up half partly in Italy. Coming into the NBA somewhat as an outsider and coming to America even as somewhat as an outsider, despite having had an, a father played in the NBA as well, he was always a bit of a, um, an isolated character, I suppose. I think it would be fantastic for people, even of my, my era, to, to kind of view that because as we've mentioned before, mate, I, I've seen Kobe, bold Kobe or 24 Kobe, whatever you want to call him, elaborately in terms of what he's done in his career, having league pass and all those types of things. I've been able to follow him quite closely. But I never watched a single number eight Kobe game in until very relatively recently so to kind of go back and look at the Kobe Shaq era and how he he scored I think he averaged about eight points in his first it wasn't huge and so to look at his whole journey and it would be fantastic now we've obviously got the books and things that, that I've, I've lent you actually <laughs> coincidentally yeah. in and around that topic I think to put it into a 10-part documentary would be would be pretty special at this moment and yeah obviously after that it'd be Derek Rose just because 
Am I right in saying that they actually did follow Kobe Bryant round with a with a camera crew final season in 2016? I think you could be right, mate. And that that leads me to another point. I think the documentaries that you make today, whether it's LeBron or Kobe, from a storytelling perspective, because of all of the footage, all of the elements that we have in terms of exposure to these people and the game, I think it would probably add quite a bit compared to what you know, maybe we had with The Last Dance, which had to rely a little bit more on interviews and kind of face-to-face with, with obviously the big names that are around at that time. Obviously, we had that single season of footage, which was added part of the allure because we hadn't seen it in that way before. But if you think about what you could potentially do with the, the mammoth amount of coverage that we have these days, it would be pretty extensive. And to get some insights on things like the decision to go to Miami, all of those different parts of LeBron's illustrious career would be pretty amazing. Again, to draw parallels to Kobe, and Jordan, how he dealt with his teammates, how he went from somewhat jagged relationship with Shaq and trying to motivate him to, to put in his you know biggest effort to the game. Obviously, he was still an absolute mammoth of a, a man and, and player. Um, but Kobe always said, you know, I think I can get more out of him. I think I can get more out of him. And then to move away, go into almost a, a rebuild stage and then having to do that all again with Gasol and Odin and the people that were on that team, including Bynum. And I think it would be fantastic. And as you say, reliving potentially that final season now would be would be pretty special. To move on to episode nine, sorry we've elaborated quite on that one. In terms of favourite moments for episode nine, mate, this concentrated predominantly on the 97 matchup between the Pacers and the Chicago Bulls in the Eastern Conference Finals. You've mentioned one, some of the first shots are of Reggie Miller, who is still one of my, my favourite players and just a very, very likeable character and player I think he's one of the more almost to a Charles Barkley level was there anything that stood out to you of that early bit of footage mate and you can't say black Jesus just because you got it tattooed on your arm as well I I gained a greater appreciation for Reggie like you say he's a very lovable likeable guy but he's also got that killer mentality that I think that we gravitate to for whatever reason and you appreciate that level of competitor especially against the greatest player ever, arguably, in Michael Jordan. And the fact that he came out openly and said that he was never afraid of Michael Jordan like the rest of the league seemed to be. And he always, always gave his best. He always delivered as much as he possibly could. And like I said to you last week on the pod, Jay, it didn't really capture how close that Pacers team came to knocking off balls. And I would be inclined to agree with them that in my mind, that year specifically, I think that the Pacers had the better team. I know that sounds crazy because ultimately the Bulls knocked them off in seven games, but it was very touch and go and it was a little bit sketchy and they kind of thought, hmm, maybe maybe the run is going to end before we get to that championship round. And yeah, just a great appreciation. And I also really like the fact, like you say, that in Reggie's 87 rookie year, he comes out and scores 10 points in the first half. You're Michael Jordan, the guy that walks on water. MJ gives him the look. And then in that second half, drops 37 38 points on Reggie and then just walks away don't ever don't ever talk shit to black jesus again <laughs> that was it game over and you know I, I thought that you know documenting those relationships and also throughout the episodes just seeing those little snippets of the backstage footage when Reggie and Michael seeing those interactions they're friendly but there's an element of I'm fucking coming for you the next game so i really like that and like we like we keep saying I think that we've lost an element of that in today's game. I think players are a little too familiar with each other and that's no fault of anyone. I think it's a good thing. I'm all for player empowerment. I'm all for connecting with people and with your peers. I think it's a positive thing overall. But I also think there's that competitor integrity 
for the game that has its place. And I think that we're that, that's a little bit blurred at times. And I think that if we're able to get an aspect of that again, I think it will add to our game as a spectacle. I, I totally agree. I mean, I'm not necessarily advocating that the Pacers were a better team. <laughs> but, you know, they, they did go up 12 in that early first quarter in Game 7. And with six minutes left, as you, as you rightly say, David Aldridge was saying, no, I think Indiana are going to win this. It would have been fantastic if they potentially had done. It would have been a very, very different legacy for, for Michael Jordan, obviously. And it was very interesting to kind of see the media reaction around that time, promoting the game as potentially Michael's last. It's not like it was a foregone conclusion, as you say. All veered on that jump ball, as Reggie talks about in, in the documentary. And the Bulls get it. I think it's Pippin that gets the rebound, kicks it out to Steve Kerr, who again was a, a big focus in this episode. And he hits the, the big shot and Bulls, you know, go to push on to, to be up five. And I run to win that game 88-83. To go back to, obviously, the focus of this episode, in addition to the paces, you obviously get a bit of a deep dive on on Steve Kerr and his relationship with his family and a parallels to that of of obviously Jordan, his relationship with his father, but also with Gus Lett, the security officer and, and, and former police officer for the Chicago Bulls. Starting with Steve Kerr, mate, how much did you know about Steve Kerr, his family, his his kind of relationship with his father? And, and did you know that father was shot in Beirut in the Middle East before this documentary? In all honesty, absolutely not. I knew that he'd lost his father, but I wasn't aware of the circumstances and information surrounding that. I gained a greater level of love and appreciation for Steve Kerr as a hard-working, integral part into those championship teams and obviously what he's grown into in later years as a coach and been able to take those values and information that he's learnt down the years and essentially mould it and use it at a very high level. A great man, a very intellectual and thoughtful man. Uh, and, and, you know, and, and to see his emotion even to this day um, made me emotional watching it, as I'm sure it did everyone else. I think it was really nice that Steve Kerr got his moment. The way that he was potentially able to bond with Michael without really having the conversation about those circumstances. The way he highlighted that this is the role player segment, I guess, of the episode, in that he, he was very, very aware as a man that he's not going to come in and be Michael Jordan. Part of the allure of, of Steve Kerr and, and how he's such a good personality as a coach is humility, and, but also his drive. He talks about maximizing himself very aware of his abilities but could always still make a huge impact despite the fact he wasn't going to be star of the team and I think that's a really valuable lesson and that self-awareness and, and humor about it is is excellent and what he says in the press conference after the win the title about Michael <laughs> yeah. in the huddle was brilliant I, I love that and you know, it snaps over to Jordan obviously in the huddle covering his face being like yeah Steve if, if they're obviously going to double me so you're going to be open. Steve, I'm not aware of media attention really at all. It's just shout like, yeah, Mike, yeah, I'll be there. Yeah. But still, still goes to him. Oh, amazing. Still, still gets the shot, you know, and what, what a moment that must have been, obviously, with the difficulty of that year for him himself and, and just to be part of that team in that moment. And as we talked about a little bit before, how Michael was able to drive people in those roles to make those big shots and talk about Michael as a killer, as a, as a closer. I think this part of his game in terms of developing players, yes, he, he had a particularly stern way of doing it. But look at what it did. Look at how it brought out that best version, I suppose, of, of Steve Kerr. I think it's, that's hugely underrated. And, and in addition to that, obviously, Steve Kerr and how he drew, drew parallels between himself and Paxson hitting that game winner earlier on in the Bulls dynasty. I thought that was that was brilliant. And to have Paxson as a mentor, I suppose, in, in, the, in his early years joining in the Bulls team must have been pretty special. But really, really enjoyed that segment, moving over 
to Michael and how he created a bond with Gus, replicated the the presence of his father in those earlier years. Small small moments and small things that Michael did, like getting Gus that game seven ball after he'd come back from cancer treatment, specifically joined the Bulls Association again to be at that game. Moments like that say a huge amount to, to Michael's character. I got actually quite emotional watching that back to have that that moment and to capsulate that on film and see the way that Gus sort of looked at MJ at times and they capture those interactions when after post game seven of them winning he's kind of insinuating that Gus is the lucky mascot and that he's coming to Utah with him I just thought that was a really nice moment and how they documented that relationship following an unfortunate death of MJ's dad and that Gus was that ever presence after that and adopted that fatherly figure role not in any way trying to replace MJ's dad but just trying to fill that void to some degree it's those small moments that because he has such a a big guard and because he has to be the leader and not show those emotions potentially to have them come out in the form of you know 2am phone calls to Gus crying about how he he just is struggling to deal with life without his father was particularly poignant I suppose is the word moving on to a slightly lighter point there's a clip of Gus in the locker room after they win that game and at the game seven sorry against the Pacers and he's got a little Air Jordan clip on his suit. And Jordan's yeah. putting on possibly the worst suit of all time. Shout out to Craig Sager. <laughs> um, in that massive, massive yellow. I don't even know what he was doing. But only Michael Jordan and maybe Craig Sager could pull that look off. <laughs> it was terrible. That was um, the style back then, Jay. That was the style, mate. MJ could like, do anything back then, man. He, even now he's still cool as fuck. It doesn't matter. He could, he could wear a bin bag and make it look good. Don't worry about it. <laughs> He's pulled off the moustache for God knows how many years. So yeah, I suppose he could he can do what he wants. <laughs> Mo- moving on to episode ten, mate. Obviously, this is the final episode, which was mixed feelings on it. It's been such a nice experience. Watch these through, and this episode predominantly focuses on that Utah matchup in '98, and we we saw Michael Jordan's children for the first time coming in and commenting how they were affected and their memories of that pandemonium around Michael. MJ comes back in the flu game or the food poisoning game. I thought that was quite interesting because it's always been referred to as the flu game, but ultimately it was food poisoning. And there was a little bit of, was that sabotage? Was, was, was there foul play there that was trying to knock the goat off his game and make him sick? And they were very careful. So I always wondered about the NBA's narrative with that. There's lots of conspiracy theories about that moment, aren't there? There's specific moments about how people, you know, drew parallels potentially with his gambling habits in that game, thinking he might have been out all night. Lots of things have kind of swirled around. So to get some form of clarity on that, as you say, was, was pretty cool. And I thought it was poetic the way he collapses into Scotty's arms in 97. I thought that was just a really touching, beautiful moment for arguably the greatest duo to ever play the game, Jay. And in 98, it kind of moves and shifts focus as the last dance. Again, the Bulls lose game one. And there's that air of fragility again. Are they going to be able to conquer? Many thought that year going in that the Utah Jazz had strengthened and were better position to knock off the tired and weary balls and again that just adds to its spectacle almost I thought as well there was an air of complacency coming off that 3-1 series lead they go back to the United Centre and you can see that even MJ is a little bit more jovial he's a little bit more happy and I think that the air of focus wasn't quite there for the balls in game five Carl Malone comes out like a madman. You see Jerry Sloan pushing him literally towards game six. And I remember thinking as a young kid, oh shit, they're for real. 
I think this is going to go seven games. And that was the feeling for many at that time. One of the other things, just before we get to game six, that I thought was particularly underrated is, is holding the Utah Jazz to 54 points in, in, I think it was game three. And that they were mentioning that is the lowest point total at that time since the advent of the shot clock. It's just ridiculous. Like, to beat someone by 42 in the finals is outrageous. And yet, the moment where Jerry Sloan comes into the prof, uh, press conference after and he's like, <laughs> looks, at the, looks at the team and goes, that was actually the score. <laughs> I was just like, mate, that, oh, yeah, you, you just can't, you can't picture it these days, can you, I don't think. Further to that, I suppose you've got Rodman's antics in the middle of all that. Um, oh, my God. Going, with this, going out to do some wrestling in the WWE. <laughs> <laughs> some of the things he comes up with, man, like, what, what would he say? Some of those lives of... Uh, just trying to party, fuck all the girls and just be Dennis. <laughs> like, you're, also, you're also on an NBA championship contender and you just sat off practice before <laughs> one of the biggest games of your life. But you're each of their own, I suppose. That wasn't really a great light for Dennis. I know that we laugh and we joke because following that game, Rodman comes up with the two crucial free throws. I would not want to be Dennis Rodman against MJ if he'd lost that game following uh, Dennis Rodman's antics. Great player. We love Dennis, but fuck me. I don't know. I, I, can, I can see how that would take its toll as a teammate. And obviously, you know, it kind of parallels back to something that he said earlier on in the series, that he was never a bad teammate. That's up for debate to some degree following his where and what he kind of went and did. He's, he's the edge though, isn't he? He's the enigma. He's, it was almost expected of him. And it was quite funny that they were all, you say, despite the potential seriousness of the situation and I'm sure Phil Jackson did quite a lot to mask his emotions on that but they're all relatively jovial and in the clip you have of that practice he has a particularly unique <laughs> way of getting the best out of himself then we were sort of given an insight which was really nice on game six um, and, and breaking that down into a bit more depth Scotty goes out with the back injury relatively early on in that game it's quite interesting to see how he deals with that. Obviously, he goes out for a little bit, tries to get some treatment for it so he can get back in and is very aware that he's going to be a decoy of sorts. Although he still puts up, you know, he still puts up some points and is still able to do a job. You can see him. And again, it shows it particularly well with the footage that they gained for this documentary, how much almost stiff he is when, he run, when he's running and getting back on defence and obviously all the grimacing that goes with that. But the thing that's, that stood out about that breakdown to me was that process of that last one minute 30 where Michael just decides to completely take over. You get the comments from Scotty saying, I was just getting out of the way. I, I want nothing to do with it. Let, let Michael do what he wants to do. And Rodman's there, obviously, talking about that very final shot to win the game, saying, there's no fucking way he's going to pass it to anyone else. He's not starting to Steve Kerr in this situation. He's done that. He's given them these guys their moments. He just says, he's going to shoot this fucker or something along those lines. Yeah, no, he did, so, yeah. Mate, just, just yeah, again, mag magical breakdown. And we get a little bit of insight from MJ, obviously, about that push-off that is, again, very much speculated about. And he sort of says, you know, bullshit. His momentum was already going that way, which I'm, I'm not sure I agree with, but let's uh, give him that. Um, some magical moments again, mate, something that we've never really been given the chance to get full play-by-play -play breakdown on. I absolutely love that final game, Jay, and that breakdown. Again, when I was a kid, I had it on VHS. I used to watch it and watch it and watch it over and over again for years. And it just used to inspire me to go and pick up a ball and start shooting again. Great breakdown coverage. It was just beautiful as a spectacle. Like I said, man, somewhat out of a storybook ending. To see Scotty go down, the toughness and level of fortitude it took for him to keep coming back 
get a little bit of treatment on his back and then go and give what he needed to the team. And I think that kind of stripped away the earlier ideas and perhaps feelings that Scotty was a little bit soft maybe with the migraine game of 1990 against the Detroit Pistons. I think, again, it was quite a nice maturation of a man and of the team that have been through all these battle-tested wars over the years. And he was there. He came out. He gave everything he could. He could hardly walk, bless him. And like you say, he did a job and contributed, even if it was only in a decoy capacity. MJ, phenomenal man. That last sort of minute just to me cemented his greatness and level of just sheer ability and, and will to win. And like you say, trips the ball away, going into in-depth detail that he was on the Carmelone's blind side, trips the ball away. And you can see the crowd, they just drop because they know, they know what's coming. And that was the definitive greatness that was Michael Jordan. As I said to you before in earlier pods, everyone knew where the ball was going. Everyone knew what was going to happen. Nobody could stop it. All these great players, all these great teams. MJ would almost taunt you before he was going to do it. And that, to me, is the definitive of greatness. It goes back to Brian Russell when MJ was retired. Why did you quit? You know I could guard you. And then he's like breaking down that Brian Russell basically guards on his toes so that once he commits one area of the floor, he's struggling to get back. I don't think I don't I, I don't think he pushed off as much as perhaps documented. You can kind of see he gives him a little push. And to be fair, earlier in the documentary, seeing Reggie, that's a fucking push. <laughs> that's yeah, a push I, I was just I was just about Jesus. to say that. Jesus. I mean, it, it worked. Just, so it worked, mate. It worked, and again, that was be- that was a great moment for Reggie and a great thing to. It was just an accumulation of greatness and a beautiful way to end a Bulls dynasty. And the fact that it was that definitive end, it was the last dance, I think added beauty of that team. And there's no doubt that they're one of the best teams, if not the best, greatest team of all time in my mind. But I'm going to be biased because I've got that affiliation with, with myself as a child, with my dad, and watching those great teams. As I'm sure many people do, you know, growing up slightly older than us, you know, the, the, the Magic Johnson 80s Lakers of the world, the Bill Russell Celtics. I think as I've kind of grown to do these things with you and, and document this series, I think I've gained a greater appreciation for just enjoying the moment, Jay rather than always looking back or looking forward. And again, that was a testament to MJ, the way that they broke down his personality type, that he was always able to focus and enjoy the moment. And certainly now, with this global pandemic, something that I'm learning every day. I was always distracted with other things going on, whether or not to have a certain job, to be earning a certain amount of money. Um, I'm focusing perhaps on materialistic things, rather than just enjoying the now and the present. Mate, I second that. And I think... One of the things that this documentary has done for me is it allowed me to kind of refocus on that pure sort of love of whether it's basketball or whatever else it might be in in your life that isn't sort of tainted by some of the maybe more corporate side of the world that we have to experience in the workplace. What can be achieved with everyone on the same page, working together for a common goal from a human perspective, to see that kind of achievement and to see what is is possible when everyone's in it, I suppose, for the right reasons and together working as a team is something we don't always necessarily get in society and politics in the workplace. Being reminded of that and how that 
the existence of that is is I think quite important. But to go to go back to the the very final moments of episode ten, I thought again another really nice element of it was seeing Carl Malone coming onto the Bulls coach congratulate Jordan after Game Seven. I thought that was a really nice moment and very very much juxtaposed to the Isaiah Thomas and and not shaking hands. But we've already we've already discussed that one. And finally, just to to round out, obviously. In that amazing eight minutes at the very end, so 10, which I, I watched back twice because I just thought it was incredible. You had Steve Kerr talking about Phil Jackson and bringing in principles that he's learned from his wife and sociology element that she was involved with, dropping and, and writing different moments of their experiences together, almost in a, in a, a way of dealing with the mourning of the enclosure of the fact that they probably won't be teammates again. And they've had, they have to close the chapter on this incredible few years together. I, I thought that was really, really magical. And Steve Kerr says he thought it was one of the most powerful things he'd ever seen. And you can just imagine seeing someone like Jordan, who again, had, had, had so many layers to him and, and a big protective armor, I suppose, on in terms of it, revealing his emotions to hear that someone like that has has written a poem about his teammates and um, was quite quite a different a different thing i thought it was very very potent jay and again it kind of it kind of speaks to what we were discussing in the previous podcast seeing this ultimate killer competitor appear almost vulnerable and seeing that more or human side i should say of mj i think just added another layer to the documentary and to have that conclusive finish in the fact that they did that and obviously MJ writing that poem I think the teammates or Steve Kerr I should say and actually says and that was a side of MJ that we never knew existed it's just a really cool insight to see one of the greatest winners and sports figures in a generation viewed in that way and almost translate it to the modern day obviously we're talking about mental health being very much in the public consciousness and to see that and translate that to the modern day athlete I thought was quite a cool aspect to think about. And that was something that got me. I'm going to be going away and reading both the Bulls book about Michael Jordan, written by the beat writer at the Bulls at the time, and also probably Phil Jackson's book after seeing moments like that, because I think the man is just full of so many gems and insights from how to deal with emotion and situations like that. I think it'd be a fascinating read to see and learn about potentially some of the more similar moments to that that he was able to bring out in the Kobe and Shaq years before hopefully as we mentioned earlier that the Kobe documentary of a similar to this one so what about yourself man um I obviously really enjoyed doing this this with you thank you again and I thought that as the last answer to the documentary it was fantastic for all basketball fans I, I maintain what I said in the opening segment or episode when we did this it was pure basketball nirvana and I think there's a greater appreciation for Michael Jordan not only as a basketball player now but as a man and being able to see and witness those maturations and those feelings the trials and tribulations that he went through from being knocked down as a sports competitor to the, the untimely death of his father and then just being able to sustain that level of excellence and winning uh, in the game of basketball, something that he was tremendously passionate about, I think was just a, an absolute joy to see for all basketball fans. I think for this modern day generation that didn't perhaps get to see him in his, in his playing days, I think, like you say, it will create interest in the game of basketball for 
not only people in America, but around the world and obviously in this country as well. I'm very, very glad that we got to see this, break it down together. I think it's been beautiful, mate. And hopefully, like you say, just one project in isolation and I hope for many more that we can do on this podcast. That concludes our reviews of The Last Dance. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Again, we will be back with more interviews in the next few days. Thank you for listening to Two Brits, One Orange Ball. If you've liked the podcast so far, please like and subscribe. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and YouTube. Coming up in the next few episodes, we'll be talking to Pat Boylan, radio host and sideline reporter for the Indiana Pacers and play-by-play at the Indiana Fever. We'll also have Sam Nita, founder of Hoops Fix. Sam is a full-time British basketball advocate and has worked on building exposure to the British game for many years. We look forward to having you join us.